0: Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club, experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro.
1: Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Thank you very much for coming back and being a part of the show again tonight. I also want to thank you for voting the show up to number 11 in the September edition of Podcast Magazine's Hot 50 list. Thanks to you, we've made a nice steady climb up the charts from number 44 to 39 to 31 to 16 to 14, and now number 11. So we're right on the cusp of breaking into the top 10. Please continue to vote by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. I really appreciate your support.
2: Okay, on to
1: tonight's show, and I've got two of the top instructors in the game, plus a couple of great college and PGA Tour players from the 1970s and 80s that I get to share with you. First up is going to be Golf Magazine Top 100 instructor Tim Cusick. Tim has been a great friend of the show for many years, He's really one of the great guys that we are fortunate to have in our game. He's out at the new PGA of America headquarters in Frisco, Texas, as a part of their instructional team. We'll talk about how the new facility is coming along. I'll get his thoughts on the Tour Championship, Patrick Cantlay's Player of the Year Award, the upcoming Ryder Cup matches, plus we'll get some playing lessons as well. Looking forward to having Tim back as part of the show as always. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from 1979 Bay Hill Invitational winner Bob Byman. Bob had a great college career at Wake Forest. Helped them win back-to-back national championships in 1974 and 75. We'll hear about that and what it was like being teammates with a couple other great players like Jay Haas and Curtis Strange. We'll hear about that win at Bay Hill. 1979, folks, was the first year that Arnold Palmer took over running that event. So that had to be a very special win for Bob. We'll talk about that in detail. We'll also hear about his experience playing in the 1978 Open Championship at St. Andrews and then back the next year in 79 at Royal Litham and St. Anne. Looking forward to having Bob as part of the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Following him, I'll be joined by another great instructor and friend, Shane LeBaron. Shane recently became the Director of Instruction at Cherry Hills out in Colorado. Cherry Hills has got a rich history in the game, as you all know. It was the site of Arnold Palmer's charge to victory in the 1960 U.S. Open. It's also hosted several other major championships, so we'll talk about that history. We'll also get some putting and chipping tips from Shane. Looking forward to having him back with me tonight. He'll join me a little bit later on in this hour. And then we're going to round out tonight's show with a visit from John Fote. John is another guy who had a tremendous college golf career, played it up at BYU, and led them to four straight WAC Conference Championships. 1977 was a great year for John. He won the U.S. Amateur Championship that year, and then he played on the Victorious Walker Cup team. So a lot happening for him in 77. 79, he goes out and wins back-to-back weeks on the PGA Tour and was named the 1979 Rookie of the Year. So a great deal to get into with him. He'll join me about an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And again, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I always like to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. As you guys know, my buddies and I were there for our annual golf trip not that long ago, and it was simply amazing. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service, and the course lived up to every expectation that we had for it. So I simply can't say enough great stuff about the place. See for yourself why I say that by going online to themaclemore.com. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones and another friend and PGA Tour caddy, Kip Henley. Said outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole we've ever seen. And Golf agreed, oh by the way, naming it the best finishing home in America since 2000. See why we're all saying how great it is by checking out the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. And, folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw, check. Low fade, check. Bump and run, out of the sand or flop shot, check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better than them all, and that's the all-new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees Under or maybe even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out online by going to TaylorMayGolf.com for more information. Okay, now back with me here on Next on the TS Top 100 Instructor and a great friend of the show, like I said a moment ago, Tim Cusick. Let me remind you about Tim's background. He's been a member of the PGA of America since 1989. He's been named one of the best instructors in the state of Texas by Golf Digest every year since 2011. And in 2019, Golf Magazine named him one of the top 100 instructors in America. He's a three-time winner of the Teacher of the Year Award by the Northern Texas PGA Section. He's also won the Horton Smith Award, which is given annually for outstanding and continuing contributions to professional golf education. Tim has also reached a level of master professional status. He has coached and helped more than 150 junior players secure a college golf scholarship. He has also coached players like Bruce Crampton, Brad Elder, Hollis Stacey, and Sandra Palmer. He formerly managed and taught at the Hank Haney Golf School and worked with Hank for 23 years. He's currently a member of the education faculty at PGA Frisco, the PGA of America's new headquarters in Frisco, Texas. He's written a great book titled The Four Keys to Improve Your Game, which you can find out on Amazon.com. And I'm honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Chris, it's certainly my pleasure, and first of all, congratulations on moving up the list of uh, the podcast. That's awesome. What a great accomplishment.
1: I appreciate you. Thanks to great guests like you that uh, listeners appreciate the show, so thank you very much for that. Thanks for being here again tonight. So,
3: my friend, catch us up. It's been a minute since
1: we got to have you on the show. What's going on out there at PGA Frisco?
0: You know, it has been a minute or so. I, uh, I, I was the director of instruction at the Four Seasons for 15 years and, and left there about this time last year, uh, to, uh, to join, uh, you know, it could be a, a lifetime experience. It looks like it's going to be a lifetime experience with, uh, partnering with the PGA of America and, uh, and PGA Frisco, the new development that's being, uh, built, uh, north of Dallas, um, $600 million project that, uh, the PGA headquarters are moving their uh, their headquarters from Florida to, to Frisco. And uh, the education faculty, which I'll be part of, uh, has moved from Port St. Lucie uh, to Frisco as, as well. So um, it's just, it's, it, I can give you, a, I can give you, a, you know, a, a quick rundown on it. Um, two championship golf courses, one Bo Welling, one Gil Hans, a 10 hole short course that Bo and Gil. Uh, collaborated on a 75,000 square foot putting course, second largest only to abandoned dunes. Both the putting course and the, and the, uh, the short course are lighted, uh, a 500 room omni hotel, 12 F and B outlets. And, uh, and as I said, um, we'll have, uh, the PGA headquarters and the education, uh, department all in one building that we're hopeful is done, uh, this coming February.
1: So yeah, when you say hopeful, we—I uh, think everybody in the, in the golfing world has got our fingers crossed. It. Are those two golf courses that you mentioned are they still on pace to open up next summer, or is it going to be beyond that? Chris,
0: if we walked out there tomorrow morning, you could play them right now. They were they wow. were grassed in and done. Uh, I would say my last trip out there in 2020 was just before they went dormant in November. And the day I was out there, they were mowing fairways and rolling greens. And, um, then, uh, this, uh, this summer, all they've been doing is just continuing to make them even better. They will start in 2023 with 10 years in a row of, of national championships, uh, run by the PGA of America. The first up is, uh, the senior PGA championship, which is in 2023 and then in 2024 the ladies KPMG LPGA championship and, and the big one in 2027 will be the PGA championship coming up.
1: That's a lot of national championships played in the same spot, which is outstanding as the course, you know, is it going to mature enough or is there a lot of trees that need to grow and or stuff like that? Give us an idea of what the golf courses look like.
0: Well, the, the land is, uh, incredibly rolling and I don't want to say hilly, but I'm going to say there's probably about an elevation change of about 200, 250 feet. Uh, it was an old farm. Uh, there was a farmhouse on top of the property that had been there for 150 years, I would say. Uh, that has been replaced now by, uh, just a, a state of the art comfort, uh, 19th hole, not 19th hole, but a uh, halfway house that they're building that's going to be just very, very special. Um, the golf courses have, uh, Gil Hans did, um, I don't want to call it the championship course, but that's where most of the championships will be played. Um, Bo did, uh, the other golf course and it's very, very interesting. And I'm sure they'll utilize that for, uh, for a number of tournaments as well, but they have different characteristics. Um, very, not, not really a lot of trees. Obviously, north of Dallas, we tend to get a little bit of wind. You'll have the wispy grass. You'll have the, there's, there's a couple really nice, um, uh, Panther Creek runs through the property. Um, it is a piece of land that you would picture, uh, prairie dunes like, uh, that I guess if you wanted something to, to match it up with or just kind of have a look of it. Uh, And it it looks like it's been there right now for 50 years.
1: And, Tim, as you mentioned, the education faculty will be housed there. So for people like me that want to come get a lesson from Tim Cusick, I got to imagine the training facility that's going to be there is going to be outstanding.
0: So we're going to have uh, two different centers. So the education faculty, which I'm a part of, is actually uh, set up. To uh, train and mentor the next generations PGA professionals coming up and through. So I've I've shifted gears a little bit to where uh, I've become more of a professor now with the PGA of America. So I am doing their teaching and coaching seminars, helping uh, mentor um, future master professionals. I sit on the national teaching and coaching committee as a staff liaison. And so a lot of my work now is is helping the next generation and, and, and today's PGA professionals. I still do some teaching, but I do that uh, right now uh, off-site at a facility called the Golf Ranch, which is in Richardson. My buddy Steve Johnson, who is a partner with Hank Haney, uh, runs that facility. And so I have time for about 10 or 15 lessons a week that I get out there and teach. And uh, so I have, I have some full days which is uh which is which is oh, great. No. Now they're going to have Chris, they're going to have a a second teaching facility. The driving range is about 450 yards deep. The tee goes 280 degrees around the driving range. And on the opposite side of the education center, there will be um a, another state-of-the-art teaching building and we'll have a dedicated teaching staff that will take care of all the golf instruction. So um, My my role is more uh, a professor than it is a golf instructor at that facility.
1: Tim, switching gears a little bit, and you talk about training the next generation. Well, the Texas chapter of the PGA of America, you've got so many talented players coming up through your junior programs. We got introduced early this year at the Masters to Will Zalatoris. We. We've got a couple of great Texans on the Ryder Cup team in Jordan Spieth and Scotty Scheffler. Talk about the programs and the junior programs that you're involved with.
0: You know, the Northern Texas PGA section uh, is just, it, it, it's a tremendous, tremendous section in, in a lot of different uh, ways. Uh, philanthropic uh, for our, our, our members uh, of the PGA and then also for our junior golfers coming up. And, uh, the Northern Texas, the Northern Texas PGA section is going to relocate to PGA Frisco Frisco as well. It's going to be right next to uh, the education center, actually. And they're getting ready to break ground on that in about another month or so. But we have, um, you know, on the Ryder Cup team, we've got Jordan Spieth and, and, uh, Scotty Scheffler was uh, a captain's pick as well. Both of those guys came up through our junior programs, Will Zalatoris the uh, newly crowned rookie of the year came up through that same Northern Texas PGA Section uh junior program. Bryson DeChambeau lives in Dallas. He's lived in Dallas since he went to SMU. He didn't take part in our junior programs, but he's very very generous with his time with junior golfers in the area and uh and he's on the Ryder Cup team as well.
1: So Tim, I got to get your thoughts on those captains picks. When you look at who uh Captain Stricker put on the team, Tony Finau Vander Shafley, Harris, English, Daniel Berger, and then the aforementioned Jordan Speeth and Scotty Shepard. Those are the captain's picks. You happy with those captain's picks? Or if it was, if it was Captain Cusick, might, uh, might a, a player to have been interchanged?
0: You know, that's, a, that's obviously, that's a, that's a tough scenario for, uh, for Steve Stricker and Fred Couples and, uh, and, and Phil Mickelson. It's very, very difficult. Um, Uh, They, they keep shuffling it every, every couple of years to, to figure out, you know, what the mix should be. Should it be how many automatic and how many captain's picks? Um, it, it, uh, you know, it was six and six this year. I think it's the most captain's picks a, a captain has ever had. Uh, I like Harris English for sure. I mean, he has played fantastic this year. Jordan has played well this year. Scotty has played well, although he hasn't won. But he's been very consistent. And, you know, when, when, when Steve Stricker and Freddie and, and, and Phil and even Tiger, I mean, I know, I know, uh, I know Steve Stricker's talking to Tiger a lot and wanted him at Whistling Straits and it just doesn't work out. But, um, you know, they're always trying to match people up. That's, it's not just, it, it's a lot about how you play, but it's about matchups as well. And it's about, you know, the way people's games are and the way the games are to fit Whistling Straits and, you know, especially team competition. And so you've got Daniel Berger and who's a very consistent player. Scotty Steffler is a, it makes a ton of birdies and, uh, and Tony Finau just won a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's any question about Harris English. Could you have gone a different way? Um, certainly Billy, Billy Horschel won this past weekend and he, you know, he was, he was sitting there. He could have been a pick. Kevin Na could have been a pick. I mean, there's probably three or four. That really, uh, you know, you would have, could have, should have, but we're going to have to go with Captain Stricker and, and, uh, and take the team we've got to whistling straights.
1: Tim, your designation by Golf Magazine as a top 100 instructor is a tremendous accomplishment. Talk about what that means to you.
0: You know, that, 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 uh, that award, that appointment, uh, that selection, when I, when I, uh, I got the call, I actually got the call from Mike Adams, who's, uh, who's in the Hall of Fame, um, World Golf Hall of Fame, um, a tremendous, uh, instructor. He called me. I remember in 2019, I was sitting there watching a Cowboys football game and he called me at halftime and, and, uh, you know, asked how I was doing and said, Hey, I've got some good news for you. And I think I yelled louder for that, that, uh, announcement than I, <laughs> I than I did at the Cowboys game. Um, but, uh, and then I, I was able to, to receive the same honor, uh, a couple months ago. And it means a lot to me. It means that, you know, what I've done for the last 30, 35 years in, in my teaching career and as a PGA professional, uh, doesn't go unnoticed like and, uh, you're rewarded for, for the hard work and, and all the success that you've had in teaching. And so. That and, and becoming a master professional in teaching and coaching with the PJ of America are two great honors.
1: So, Tim, I got to get a couple of playing lessons from you tonight because I'm struggling hard Certainly. in my golf game. Um, I want to start really uh, on the green because one of the things that, uh, and I don't know maybe because I'm old now, but reading greens has become something that, uh, I need a lot of help with. Sometimes I don't even read the, the right break going in the right direction. So, <laughs> um, and I know you were just recently at a place where reading greens is, is paramount up at home. Oh so I need, oh. I need your help trying to figure out how do I read greens better?
0: Well, what a treat it was last week to play. Uh, I played 18 holes on last Wednesday and 27 on Thursday. And, and, and I guess fortunate for us, we had a little bit of rain that, uh, that slowed the greens down just a tad and they probably were only rolling about 13. But they were still firm, and there's so much undulation in those greens. Uh, Chris, there's a number of different ways that you can look at it in terms of reading greens. And and I, I kind of go through about four or five or six with my, my students. I like taking a look at the green uh, as I approach the green. Off the green, away from the green, I can see from a distance the overall contour of, of, of how the green moves. And then specifically in between the golf ball and the hole. And then I started looking for, you know, low points in the green where the water would drain and, and, and water has to drain. The green can't be perfectly flat or else it would die. If there was water on it, it would, it would bake. So there has to be subtle movement throughout the green. And then as I marked my golf ball, I'll stand to the side, Bones Mackay, Phil's uh old caddy he used to do this a lot where he'd stand there with his arm behind his back, like he was going to putt to just feel what his feet are feeling. Not necessarily what his eyes are seeing, but what his feet are feeling. Are his toes being pulled towards the golf ball, which would mean a left-to-right break? Are his toes up in the air and he's back on his heels, which would be a right-to-left break for a right-handed golfer? So that starts the process. And then I start taking a look at, at how the hole is tilted. Which way is the hole tilted? Because that tells me, as the ball is rolling its slowest, which way it's susceptible to move at the hole. And so that helps me get a a picture going into the hole, which way it's going to move. People like to look at the hole as a clock. The front of the hole is 6 o'clock. The back of the hole is 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock on the right side, 9 o'clock on the left. And picturing where you see the ball going in the hole in reference to a clock and then drawing a line or an arc, a straight line or an arc, depending on the type of putt, back to the golf ball. Those are some ways that you can read greens. There's other ways. Uh, I don't expect my student to go through all of those. Pick one that works for you. And that might be a a, a good way to just help you with the with the reading greens. One of the best ways, though, is to have good distance control. Because when you have good distance control, you have a better idea how much break you have to play. When your distance control is inconsistent, it's very difficult to read the greens because you don't know how hard you're going to hit it.
1: And speaking of how hard you're going to hit it, as we back away from the green a little bit, sort of that in between shot, let's, let's say inside of a hundred yards, trying to dial in the distance with whether it's a pitching wedge, sand wedge, lob wedge, it, uh, it gets tricky. What's a good way for us to figure out what distance and how much of a swing we need to take and then what club we need to pull when we're sort of in that in between less than a hundred yards out?
0: Chris, I would say a very, uh, successful way and a lot of, uh, world class players will do this is they almost back into a yardage. What they'll do is they'll take their wedges. They'll take their, their lob wedge, their sand wedge, their gap wedge, their pitching wedge. So you got four clubs there. Let's say it's 60, 56, 52, 48. And, um, what they will do is they'll start making certain length swings. Let's say, Let's say 9 o'clock, which means that your 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 lead arm, your your left arm for right-handed golfer is parallel to the ground, and you pinch your wrist in the backswing, and you swing all the way through with a consistent tempo or rhythm. And as you start making a consistent length swing, you're going to get a consistent distance. And then you figure out what that distance is. And then I found that if you choke down maybe into the middle of the grip, That will probably take about five yards off the shot. So now with the same swing, but two different grips, you've got two different distances, five yards apart. And then you take the, the, you do that with a 60, you do that with a 56, you do it with a 52, you do that with a 48. So you've got what? You've got uh, eight distances with one golf swing and you might have some overlap, but if you have overlap, one's going to fly higher than the other one will release more. And that's a process that you can do. You could use a swing that's shoulder length to shoulder length and do the same thing. And all of a sudden, you start gathering these yardages. Carry yardage is the most important. I always talk about divot to ball mark. That's what you're trying to measure. And as you do that, you're going to start creating yardages from about 40 to 115, 120 yards. And uh, you become very, very accurate trying to make set length swings to get a
1: set yardage. Tim, uh, another flaw in my golf swing and is uh, I'm starting to get over the top and pull hooking my irons while I'm slicing my driver. I'm trying to concentrate to keep my right shoulder still, try to keep that thing quiet because I think I'm sort of getting out in front of the golf uh, in front of my golf swing. What are some of the things that I can do to fix both of those problems?
0: So, Chris. Um that, that's a very common problem. Uh, the pull hook typically comes with the uh, more lofted clubs, and the the, the slice to the right uh, comes with the straighter face clubs. And it, uh, you know, it, it's really the same swing, but it's what you're doing with the club face at at, at impact. So uh, TrackMan and and FlightScope and the other launch monitors have told us for the last 10 or 15 years that a good majority of the initial direction of the shot has to do with the club face first and foremost, and the path has a little bit to do with it. But the club face is the predominant, predominant influence of the initial direction of a shot. So if you have your swing coming out and down to the left with the path for a right-handed golfer, and the club face is square to the direction you're swinging, you're going to hit a pull. And if the club face is closed to the direction you're swinging, you're going to hit a pull hook. If you come out and down to the left with the driver and the face is open to the direction you're swinging, you're going to start imparting side spin that moves from left to right. Depending on how wide that range is, the club face to the path will depend on how much that ball curves from, from left to right. The key is, is that you've got? First of all, you got to make sure that the club isn't moving too much inside and the takeaway and the backswing that's making you come over the top. So make sure that club's coming back and up onto the plane, and then you need to feel as though wherever you take the club back, you're going to hit a little bit inside and out to right field on the downswing. Almost, almost what you might think Jim Furyk might feel like, because you're making a you're making a loop. You're just making a reverse loop. You're making an opposite of what Jim Furyk's doing. So you want to feel like wherever you take the club back in the backswing, you're going to hit a little inside and out to right field on the downswing. Make some practice swings that way, and that will help change that initial direction of the shot.
1: Tim, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, whether it's checking out your website or following you on social media?
0: Absolutely. So my website is timqsickgolf.com, C-U-S-I-C-K, if I spell my last name, Tim Uh On uh, on Facebook, Tim Cusick Golf. On Twitter, Tim Cusick Golf. And on Instagram, it's cusick.tim. And uh, my email address is tim at timcusickgolf.com.
1: Well, Tim, it's been great catching up with you and having you back as part of the show again tonight. I hope we get to uh, spend a lot more time with you more frequently and a lot sooner than, uh, than this time. Uh, you're fantastic, my friend. I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time.
0: Chris, thanks so much. I can't wait to show you PJ Frisco when it's, uh, when it's all set and ready. And, uh, congratulations again on all the fine work with your podcast. I can't wait to talk to you again. You're doing a great job. I appreciate you, Tim.
1: Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon.
0: Will do. Thanks, sir. See
1: you, Tim. That's the great Tim Cusick. Again, Golf Magazine Top 100 instructor uh, folks. Check him out online. A lot of great uh, videos as well. If you go to YouTube and search for Tim Cusick, again, the spelling of his last name is C-U-S-I-C-K. So you check it out. There's a lot of great content there. And I, and it's also on his website. He's got links to YouTube, but you'll find it uh, when you go under the media section of his website. Again, TimCusickGolf.com. Look forward to catching up with uh, Tim again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Bob Byman, I want to remind you about a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of nine yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, that's dot zcom and get Squares' 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Gloves have you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Gloves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also help prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to bionicloves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Zexio. In 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women. And they've improved on those clubs every year since. I was fit for a set of Zexio 10 irons by a great fitter on their staff. He got me dialed in and they feel and perform fantastically. They are light. I've picked up nearly 5 miles per hour in swing speed and they're deadly accurate. Every part of Zexio Clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factor. And the best part of getting fit for Zexio Clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before, changing your game. Zexio Clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. NB Park is a Zexio ambassador, as are Ernie Els and top instructor Martin Hall. See why and how Zexio can help your game as well. Go online to ZexioUSA.com. That's dot com, and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Bob Byman. Bob is from Poughkeepsie, New York. He played his college golf at Wake Forest, where he lettered all four years from 1973 to 1976. He was named All-American three times and All-ACC twice. He helped the Demon Deacons to -to back-to-back national championships in 1974 and 75. His 73.25 career stroke average is still one of the tops in school history. He tied for first at the 1974 ACC Championship, and he finished second the following year behind teammate Curtis Strange. He took medalist honors at the 1974 Furman Intercollegiate Tournament, the 1975 Iron Duke Intercollegiate Tournament, and the 1976 Duke Spring Invitational. He turned pro in 1976. Bob played on the European Tour and had a great deal of success over there in 1977. He won three national Opens in Sweden, Holland, and New Zealand, and he finished fifth on the European Order of Merit. He would go on to win the Dutch and Scandinavian Opens twice, including in 1978 by One Stroke over Nick Price. He would go on to earn his Tour card in '78. He won the Bay Hill Invitational in 1979 in a playoff over John Schroeder. Later in 79, he would finish tied for seventh at the Open Championship at Royal Litham in St. Anne's. By 1987, he turned his attention to teaching the game. Now Bob has a wonderful golf school out in Las Vegas, also does some teaching in New York. And I'm excited to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Hi, Chris. Nice to be here with you. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Bob, I want to start our time tonight by going back to your junior golf days, because even though you're from Poughkeepsie, at 16 years of age, you're out there in Colorado dominating the amateur championships out there. You won the Colorado State Am three years in a row. You became the the youngest player to ever qualify for the U.S. Open. Talk about you know your transition from New York to Colorado, and then those young amateur days where you were dominating the scene out there.
3: Well, my father, uh, was, uh, worked with IBM. And, uh, so, so we, I uh, initially lived in, uh, in Poughkeepsie, Kingston, New York until I was about 12 years old. Played a lot of golf, a lot of junior golf then. I had an older brother that, uh, inspired me and helped me along the way at Viman. And, uh, we, we moved to, uh, Boulder, Colorado when I was 13. And of course, I, I picked up uh, golf again as soon as uh, we got there. And, uh, you know, I had, I had a couple, uh, important moments in time. I was, I remember practicing at Flatiron Country Club in Boulder. Uh, you know, uh, I was a pretty good player when I was 15. I was probably a zero handicap already, but had a very strong grip. And a buddy of mine was watching me uh, hit some balls and, uh, he said, well, you know, how come you hook so many shots? He said, well, I, I don't hook any shots. He said, look, you need to look at this book. You need to read this book. And that was Ben Hogan's five lessons of the modern fundamentals of golf. So he said, look, if you really want to be the best that you can be, you need to get your hands on the club this way. And so, uh, you know, I, I devoured that book that night and, uh, didn't initially, uh, make the adjustments. But I did do that when I was 16. And, uh, initially I was hitting everything off to the right, uh, not very good. But within about two or three days, I started hitting the ball like I had, like I was imagining it to go. It was, it was, it was fabulous. And, uh, that is really what led me to be able to separate myself from the other junior and amateur golfers. In the state when I was 16 years old, that was 1971 and, uh, kept going, you know, just kept improving. You mentioned, uh, I qualified for the U S open that next year when I was 17, played at Pebble Beach and, uh, just one of the greatest uh, experiences of my life. You know, that as you, as you go through this stuff, one thing leads to another played with Arnold Palmer in a practice round there. And I remember double bogeying the, the first hole. I was about the, I think the most nervous I've ever been in, in golf on the first tee. It was unbelievable. And I double bogeyed the first hole and then never missed another fairway and never missed a green. It was about 55 degrees. The wind was blowing 15 miles an hour. One of the greatest 17 holes I've ever played in my life. I made about a 20-footer in the last hole and Arnold's looking over at me and he's clapping for me. He stopped me afterwards and said, You young man, uh, I I like what you're doing. You should consider going to Wake Forest. And that's really the thing that uh opened that idea up to me. And then of course I talked with the great uh Jesse Haddock, uh the coach there, and that that kind of sealed the deal. So that's that kind of brings me up uh into college day.
1: So I got, but I got to ask you, right? I mean, you're, you're out in Colorado and I, and I certainly, if Arnold Palmer says, says to you, you need, you need to go to Wake Forest. Well, you need to go to Wake Forest, but I have to imagine well, having had such a successful amateur career, you had to have college coaches knocking down
2: your door. It was, well, was, it, I did. was it really I Mr. That, Palmer?
3: Uh, he, he, that was very, very influential to me. Uh, I, you know, I, I had won the U.S. Junior uh, when I was seventeen. I, I think I, that year, 1972. I think I played in 13 tournaments. I think I won uh, at least 10 or 11 of them. The only ones I didn't win with U.S. Open, the U.S. Amateur, and I think the Colorado Open. I mean, it was it was a, it was a great uh, uh, season. And you know, play as you know, I played a lot uh, uh, as a pro. But I, the game was never as simple and easy for me as a pro as it was during that uh, that one year in, in uh in high school. So uh you know Arnold was was a big deal. That was a big moment for me playing with him and then having him say that, but actually visiting uh Wake Forest and uh meeting and talking to Jesse Haddock, that that really sealed it. You know, I, I had lots of offers I, I think, uh, I was the number one recruited guy in the, in the country at, at that point. Curtis Strange was the number two and we both went, both were recruited at the same year. It was unbelievable. So we turned a, you know, a good program into a great program and that allowed us to, uh, to win those, those next two, uh, NCAA championships. It was great, great time to be, uh, that way for us for sure.
1: Yeah. And as I was doing the research, that 75 team that you guys had is touted as the best college team ever, according to Golf World magazine. I mean, you guys won that second national championship by 33 strokes over Oklahoma State. So it was much closer going into the final round. I think you guys had about a six stroke lead going into that final round and then put on a clinic and you and Curtis and yet Jay Haas and David Thor leading the team and Jay would win the individual national championship but Curtis finished third you finished fourth talk about that team
3: yeah we had a fabulous team uh uh, you know I went went to school uh, I was not healthy when I went to school my elbow was bothering me a bit but I got to play with Curtis a number of times when he was uh, a freshman I was a freshman and uh he was the most fundamentally sound player as a junior that I'd ever seen. It was it was incredible how how this uh, uh young fella drove the ball and was able to hit long irons. I'd never seen anything like it. And uh of course he won the NCAA individual championship as a freshman and and then that led us into uh the the next year where where Jay Haas started to uh, exert his talent, and all of us wanted to win that NCAA, not just for the team, but individually. So we had uh, a bunch of guys that last day that uh, three of three out of us had a great chance to uh, to win the the event uh, individually, and 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 because of that, I I think that's why we just uh, we just moved past everybody. It was unbelievable, really, I mean, when you think back at it. I mean, we, Jay finished first, uh, Curtis finished third, I finished fourth, and David uh, Thor, which was another terrific player, terrific player, who uh, was from North Carolina, uh, very solid player, had a nice tournament, so we just, we just absolutely dominated. And it was a, uh, very, very satisfying, and uh, for everybody, I think that was I, I don't I don't know you know you you look back and you go well here's here's Curtis Strange he became the number one player in the world for a couple of years Jay Haas had probably the longest career of all of us and then won a major championship at, on the Champions Tour and in Golf World I was given the I was kind of touted as the uh, uh, the international rookie of the year in 1977. And David Thor, and I, and I played on the tour for, you know, whatever, uh, eight, nine years in a, in a world-class manner. And David Thor made the tour and played on the tour for a couple of years. So all four of us made the tour and, 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 uh, you know, all of us excelled in, in a very, very nice way. So it, it was a great, great team.
1: Talk to us about those, you know, it, when, you, when I think about the, those college days and how good you guys were. And I'm imagining you guys pushing each other. As you mentioned, all of you had a chance to win a national championship. You were right there clustered. Is this a group of guys that were up in the morning when you weren't in class, out at the practice range, at the practice facility, doing whatever you guys needed to do and pushing each other to be better and better and better? Or where did the college life fit in so you had a, a, a nice college experience? What was it actually like, not just on tournament days, but in the preparation and on the practice facility, trying to be the best and try to beating each other, which raised the level of the team.
3: Well, I would say that I did uh, the most practice of of any of the uh, the four or five of the top guys out there. Um, you know Jay and and Curtis were beautifully taught. I mean, uh, just you know uh, Curtis's father. Uh, was a terrific player. I think he played in five or six, uh, U.S. Opens and was taught or influenced by Sam Snead. So that kind of translated into Curtis. Curtis practiced, but he didn't practice so much. He, he loved to play and he worked on his game out on the golf course. Jay was influenced by Bob Goldby. So his, uh, his technique was, you know, pretty sound. Uh, he, he improved, uh, continued to prove as a, as a professional. But he was a solid player, not a great practicer either, but but the, they, they spent a lot of time on the golf course, and David was uh kind of on the in- between. He did some practicing and uh and playing as well. So most of the time that we spent together as a team was on the golf course, uh, uh you know working together, talking to each other, just noticing what the other player does uh we had some fabulous uh you know five and, and six guys too if you remember a guy named Scott Hope had a had a heck of a time getting on our team and he uh, he ended up having one of the one of the best professional uh uh, uh careers of, of any of us so i mean it, it was it was really highly competitive and uh but that, that's kind of the way it went and and it, it was a it was a good time we we had uh we worked hard We did have some college experience um, uh, for everybody, and it it was a good time, good time.
1: Were those three years, 1974 to 76, and you guys competing for the national championship each year, was that when golf was the most fun for you, or did it get even better when you went out and played professionally on the European and the PGA Tours?
3: Mm -hmm. You know, I... I, think I mentioned uh, earlier when I was 17, that was probably the most enjoyable golf was for me. Because uh I, I you know, I didn't know everything about how to play the game, but I was able to hit the shots that was uh, that were in my mind more often than uh, probably any other time. I had to find out other ways to play the game as a pro because my technique I was not taught particularly well. I just kind of dug it out of the ground and was uh, was highly talented. So, you know, I had to figure out how to curve the ball and, and and be a shot maker and have a great uh, you know, let's say inside of a 120 game and a uh, you know, highly competitive attitude. Uh, you know, I I learned as a as a kid early from uh, from a quote from Ben Hogan if you want to win you have to outwork them you have to outthink them and then you and you try to do your best to intimidate so i i certainly tried to outwork everybody i did my very best to have no one have a better strategy or management or a plan to play and uh you know in in some circles uh when i was playing my best Perhaps I had a little bit of intimidation until I came on the PGA Tour, <laughs> okay, because there were so many <laughs> great players at that point. But, uh, certainly in, in Europe, it was a, it was, oh my goodness, uh, you know, it, it's interesting how things lead you to one thing and, and then to another. I missed qualifying for the, uh, the PGA Tour by a shot, six rounds, shot even par for six rounds, one under made it, and, uh, it was, very depressed, and, uh, you know, I like, go, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And a buddy of mine uh, was taking a group of uh, U.S. players over to Europe. And all you had to do was Monday qualify at that point. And if you Monday qualified, you are in the tournament. So after about a week of licking my wounds, I decided that I would go. And uh, the third week I was over there, I won the event. And, uh, I believe it was the fifth or sixth week I won another back and forth. Uh, I think I played only seven or eight tournaments that year and finished fifth on the order of merit. It was, it was a great, great experience. Later in the year, I went to Australia and New Zealand to play, won the New Zealand Open, had some great, uh, some, some high finishes, uh, in, in New Zealand and Australia. And, uh, I, you know, I would not give up playing internationally for anything. I eventually got on the tour in 1978, qualified. I was ready at that point. And then my 13th tournament, I, uh, I won on the, on uh, the PJ tour at, at the inaugural uh, Bay Hill Classic.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that Bay Hill Classic. To your point a moment ago, you had to go through Monday qualifying and, and you, and you did that. And that 79 year, I believe was Mr. Palmer's first year as the tournament yep. sponsor. And and you, you won it when I look back at, over that tournament, you won it in part thanks to a hot start in the final round. You birdied three of the first five holes and got a little hairy down, down the stretch on 17 and 18. But then you go into a playoff against John Schroeder, you, you par the second playoff hole. And the next thing you know, you're standing in front of Mr. Palmer and uh, he's handing you the trophy. That had to be a special thing.
3: Well, it sure was. Uh, you know, I qualified on on a Monday. I, I was on the West Coast uh, for the weeks before, not playing well. I came home. I had a week off, and uh, looking in the mirror. You know, uh, we didn't really use video all that much back then, and experimenting with this and experimenting with that. And all of a sudden, I caught something, and then played a pretty good uh, 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 qualifying round. And then, interestingly. Uh this was this was in, in the Orlando area and uh very often Mo Norman would be you know near the tournament. And he was at the at the the course that, that the qualifying was at and he was hitting some balls afterwards. I had I had met Mo uh a, a few years before, i had uh, become friendly with him. So I went over and watched him and and got uh you know just just uh, just absorbed the repetition, not not the way he moved. But uh you know the fundamentals of you, but the 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 energy signature and the repetitiveness of the rhythm, and then I applied that to myself, and with the thing that I had learned the week before about the what I had been doing in my swing, it all came together, and I was super confident going into that event. uh actually played with Curtis and Jay and my brother Ed in the practice round. That was the best round I played the entire week and, <laughs> and then played pretty darn well, uh, you know, through, uh, I would say 70 holes. And then the 71st hole, that 17th hole, wow, that was, uh, that was something. Uh, the par three there over the water, over the, over the bunkers. My legs got as heavy as they had ever been. Uh, I had never experienced that before. Hit the ball a little bit in the heel, came up in the bunker, hit it up about three feet, missed the putt. And that kind of uh jolted me back into uh, you know, let's let's get this done kind of thing. Now I bogeyed the last hole, but that that actually prepared me for the for the playoff. Uh the first playoff hole, I hit a good drive, hit a hit maybe the one of the best iron shots I've ever hit in my life, almost folded, it, went about eight feet by, left the putt on the on the lip. Hit a good drive on the next hole. Hit it up about 35 feet to the right uh, of the hole. Depends on the front uh, front left. And uh, John Schroeder did not hit a good second shot. shifted it up about six feet. I hit my 35-40 footer up about six inches. Tapped it in, and he missed it on the left. And uh, that was it. I, I, I won the event. It was. <laughs> I you know I I'm talking about it, and I can still uh, my. You know, my, my, uh, my body can still feel what, what I, I was experiencing at that time. It's fabulous. Great.
1: Bob, a couple more before I let you go. And when I, I want to talk about your experiences at the open championship in 78 and 79, that 78 year, you finished tied for 17th. The event was played at St. Andrews. That would be a year that Jack Nicholas won, but it was a veritable who's who of golf legends. Around the top of the leaderboard throughout all four rounds. What was it like for you being in the mix there?
3: Well, that was, uh, that was my first introduction to being, I would say, close to, you know, at least having an outside chance to win. Uh, I played with Sebby Bastero, who, who had become a, uh, you know, a, a high, a great competitor of mine, but, uh, a, a friend as well. We played the last round together. And uh, I was two under, I believe through nine or 10. And, uh, at that point, I think five under was leading. So I figured, man, if I could, you know, find a way to, uh, to make a couple birdies coming in the end, maybe I could get in the mix. Of course, 18 was downwind at that point. Uh, you know, you're always thinking you can make a, uh, a, a birdie there. So, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, that, that first experience was, you know, just a little bit too much for my nervous system to handle at that point. I had not imagined and prepared for some of the things that my body and my mind were experiencing. I think I shot two over on the last nine, played pretty solidly, but, uh, missed a shot here and there and finished even par for the event. Uh, and that kind of led me into 1979. I was playing a little bit better in 1979 than in 1978. Although I was not playing as well as I, I was at the, uh, at the Bay Hill, uh, like, like three months before. So I was confident, but there was still, if I could figure out just that one little thing, you know, I, I might be able to, uh, find a way. So the last nine of the last day, uh, this is Royal Litham in St. Anne's. Uh, you know, I was right there. I birdied the thirteenth pole. I think I got back to maybe one over for the event. I think Jack was even and, and uh against Stevie, by Asteros, I think was two under at that point. So I was right there. Uh the wind was blowing about thirty and I I continued to hit good uh good drives uh had trouble with the irons coming in and uh just was not able to finish strongly and finish seventh there from being third. So I was you know, you look back and you go, wow, you know, I finished seventh. That's really, really good. But I was third by myself at at a moment in time there. So I was very disappointed and uh that uh how how that how that happened. But looking back it's like, wow you finished seventh in the British Open, that's pretty good you know so. yeah it is Bob, oh. well, let
1: everybody know what you're doing now uh, teaching the game in your golf school
3: yes sir i've uh of course uh, as you mentioned i played on the tour for a long time and uh teaching a little bit uh, 1985 and then in uh in in full that became my business in 1987 uh Taught all over the world, in different uh, locations uh, around. Uh, but now my business is in Las Vegas. I teach at the TPC Las Vegas, and uh, we specialize in one-on-one golf schools. But we can handle uh, any size group and any goal that uh, any any uh, golfer has for themselves. You know, with my competitive experience and my teaching and coaching uh over decades uh give me that expertise uh i i i feel like you know i give uh as as good as or better than anybody in, in the world today as a coach or 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 a uh, or a teacher so uh you can you can find me at golf dot com or go to golfschool.com. dot com
1: well, Bob, it has been a thrill having you as part of the show tonight. I feel like we probably just scratched the surface on being able to tap into, particularly on the teaching side. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime.
3: Oh, I would love to, Chris. That would be great. I appreciate it very much. It's, uh, I've, I've listened to uh, a number of your podcasts now and very, very impressed. And you are, uh, you're just, uh, a great guy. And, uh, I appreciate you giving me the time to be with you tonight.
1: Well, certainly glad to have had you here and thank you very much for that. Stay safe, Bob. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. See you, Bob. That's the great Bob Feynman. And I tell you what, folks, uh, what a tremendous, you know, college career. Obviously back to back national championships and a guy that was right at the top, uh, of the college game. And then obviously at the amateur, at the amateur level and then transitioned that over to the PGA tour and uh, over in Europe where he won, like I say, several national championships. A great player and now a great instructor. So next time we get him back, we'll start to pick his brain a little bit more on the teaching side. But you can see the pedigree he has behind him and what a wonderful golfer he has been. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Shane LeBaron, I want to remind you about a few more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. Are you like me? always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares golf shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of nine yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to Squares.com, that's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com and get Square's 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Square's, the distance golf shoe. And folks, this segment of the show was sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore.
0: This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show.
1: Now back and next on the tee with me is one of the top instructors in the game and another great friend of the show, Shane LeBaron. Let me remind you about Shane's background. He's from Lincoln, Nebraska. He played his college golf at Oklahoma State and then Methodist College in Fayetteville, North Carolina. After college, he played out on the mini-tours before deciding that teaching the game was where his heart is at. He became the assistant golf professional at Blue Hills Country Club in Kansas City in 1998, where he learned under PGA Hall of Fame instructor Stan Thursk. From there, he moved over to become the lead instructor at Shadow Glen Golf Club in Kansas. 2002, he moved over to Hilton Head, South Carolina, where he worked as an instructor at both Moss Creek Golf Club and Belfair Golf Club. He later opened his own golf school at Old South Golf Club in Bluffton, South Carolina. He became the college golf coach at the University of South Carolina Beaufort in 2008. In 2012, he became the director of instruction at the Plain Truth Performance Center at Wigwam Resort in Phoenix, Arizona. And like our friends Andy Trainer and Kevin Roman, Shane is a Level 3 Plain Truth Certified Instructor. He's been nominated a few times by Golf Magazine as one of their Top 100 Instructors. Golf Digest voted him the best teacher in the state of Arizona in 2013. He's on the Callaway Golf Master Staff. And Shane has now become the first Director of Instruction at Cherry Hills Golf Club in Cherry Valley, Colorado. And I'm very honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Shane, thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Chris, thanks so much for having me. How
1: are you? I'm fantastic, Shane. How are you, my friend? It's been a minute since I got to talk to you. Talk catch us up, especially now that you're out there at Cherry
0: Hills. Yeah. Life's changed a little bit. Um it's pretty neat. Uh just uh very interesting how this all came about. Uh I was pretty happy. I was at the two places. I think last we talked. I was at Knollwood Club in Lake Forest, Illinois, and then and Mirabelle Club in Scottsdale, wonderful place. And Cherry Hills has gone through some changes and they hired a new head pro, uh, Andrew Shuck, who's a really good guy, and anyway, part of their deal was looking for an instructor. And I got a phone call from him. We had a great conversation and one thing led to another and I now live in Denver
1: <laughs> And and for folks, and I'm sure everybody who loves the game knows about Cherry Hills. I mean, it's one of the most historic places in our game. Historians will remember, you know, Arnold Palmer for his great charge at the 1960 U.S. Open there at Cherry Hills when he drove the first green, you know, 346-yard power four. And we've seen Andy North win a U.S. Open there. Phil Mickelson won a U.S. Amateur there. Jack Nicklaus won a U.S. Senior Open there. I mean, talk about the rich history for that golf course that you get to be a part of now.
0: It's it's impressive. It um, we also have the USAM coming up in twenty three. At Cherry Hills. I don't know if well, you know that or not. Uh yeah. but it's um so as a as an instructor, uh, you're you're always kinda looking for a place that you, know, you can go to and, and maybe you can it's the perfect job and you can be there for a long time and it's it's always great. You know, if you find a good job, but it's you're either following up somebody who's done a really bang up job and you've got huge shoes to fill. Right. Um Or you're coming into a place where maybe things didn't go quite as well as they would have liked. And maybe the membership is a bad taste in their mouth about instruction. And then you're digging yourself out of a hole. Well, the beauty of Cherry Hills is it never happened. So I'm I'm it. So it's it's my stamp. <laughs> it's my footprint. And it's, it's really kind of an exciting thing because again, like I'm not digging myself out of a hole and I'm not following up some, you know, uh, uh, some, somebody who's just done incredible. So it's, it's really neat. Uh, the membership's great. They're really just fantastic people. The golf course is just, Chris, it's unbelievable. It is so good. Uh, I'll all be excited to see how the kids do. I say kids because the US amateur now is. All of a sudden, a big college golf tournament. But I'll be excited to see how they do, and uh, it'll be it'll be a great match play event. It'll be so much fun to watch them.
1: So Shane, I mean, I really want to get your thoughts as you talk about how wonderful the golf course is, and I and I'm sure it's it's all that and more. I mean, like I say, when I go back and I look at some of the historical films, obviously I took a look at Mr. Palmer's win in 1960 at, at the U.S. Open. I mean. He, yeah. he beat Penn Hogan and, and Jack Nicholas. Jack was still an amateur at that point, but you know, Mister Hogan had an opportunity to win 17. I think got him, and, and and 18 sort of finished the deal for for him trying to win that U.S. Open. But uh Jack was right in the mix there, and then obviously that great charge for Mister Palmer. But talk about the golf course, what it looks like, and for folks that have never seen it and gone back to look. Obviously, we'll get a, we'll probably get a good look here in a couple of years. To your point at the USM. To talk about what that golf course looks like.
0: Well, it's a, it's a William Flynn design. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he also did Shinnecock. That's um, right. The, the greens are impressive. They're, they're small, uh, but there's a good amount of undulation on those greens and there's a huge percentage on second shots. So the, the fairways are, um, and I wouldn't call them easy to hit by any stretch, but they're definitely gettable off the tee. But the second shot, because the greens are so small, if you don't have enough height and enough spin on the ball, you you can struggle on that golf course. Um, it's it's at altitude, so that does play a little different, right? But um, I think Cherry Hills is about 5,400 feet, 5,500 feet in elevation, so it's up there a good bit, so the ball does travel. And that plays a role, but it's interesting because a lot of the longer, tougher holes happen to play uphill, which is sort of an altitude equalizer, right? And our ninth hole, for example, I think from the back keys, it's got to be 470 and change, but it is straight uphill. It's not quite as uphill as, say, 18 at Augusta National, but it is up. And so when you're coming up nine, you have to just absolutely bust a drive and then you've got this little uphill hanger lie, you know, trying to hit an iron shot to get it onto the green. And that's not the easiest shot in the world. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a really neat golf course. I feel like it kind of, you know, some of these places, they really just stand the test of time and, uh, the conditioning is fantastic. There's, there's a little bit of elevation change kind of mildly throughout the course. And then you've got a ravine that runs through the golf course. It also comes into play on in quite a few shots if you get a little wayward. So it's, it's just, it's fantastic. Big, huge old trees, uh, thick, lush, rough greens that just whistle. And, uh, so I hope you, if you get a chance, you need to come out and play.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to twist my arm hard to come play Cherry Hills. I
0: promise you that. Did, uh, did, by, by the way, so when you were talking about Mr. Palmer and his charge. So, do you know what happened on 17 with Hogan?
1: Yeah, didn't he, didn't he uh, spin his ball back into the water?
0: So he hit the pin on 17 with a wedge oh, shot. My. 17 is an island. So it's a par five with an island green. And he hit the pin on his third shot with a, with a little wedge shot, and it came off the pin and went in the water. And he tried to play out of it. And no. he played with Jack Nicholas, And afterwards, they interviewed right. Mr. Hogan. And he said, well, if this kid learned how to putt, he might win something. <laughs> <laughs> I think he triggered it out. <laughs> but, Indeed. But it's, uh, it's, it's pretty It's pretty neat to be part of the, at least the history going forward of this. It's just a spectacular facility. It really is.
1: Shane, we haven't talked in the past about, um, who your golf idols were. I know, I know you're a fan of Mr. Hogan, but who are the guys out on tour that, uh, that you really
0: admired? So I was a huge Nick Price fan. And, uh, I've always been a fan of guys that can strike an iron and, and Nick Price could just flat hit iron shots. And I think we all remember him playing those little Ram FX blades. and I mean just firing at pins. He was just incredible with an iron. So I've I've always been enamored at players that hit unbelievable iron shots. I get a kick out of that. Um it was funny. When I was at Moss Creek years ago, uh we had a gal that worked uh in the administrative part of the of the club. Her name's Jill and one day we came up there and I, I was getting something out of the administrative office and and golf came up, and she said, well, who do you like? And I said, well, I'm a huge Nick Price fan. She said, no kidding. And I guess they're family friends. And she didn't oh, tell wow. me I said, yeah. I said, well, Nick Price and I both have the same birthday. I loved watching him play. I had a Fat Lady Swings putter, if you remember those. Um, it was a Bobby Grace Fat Lady Swings is what it was called, the putter. And uh, <laughs> Nick Price used, and I got one of those because he was using it. And anyway, I said, well, we have the same birthday, January twenty. 20- I said, we have the same birthday. She said, no kidding, January 28th. And i not that bright, so I didn't put two and two together. Well, <laughs> my birthday rolls around, and this package shows up at the club. And it was a, p- a picture of Mr. Price holding the Claret Jug signed, you know, to Shane, happy birthday, what a great day to have a birthday on, best wishes, Nick Price. And that was like the coolest wow. thing I've ever seen. So no a huge doubt. Nick Price fan, unbelievable solid ball striker. you know, it's, I've never gotten a chance to actually meet him in person. Um, is that right? But, but thoroughly never, never in my life. Um, uh, but, but thoroughly just thought he was just the best. And, um, uh, also a huge Freddie Couples fan.
1: That's interesting. Freddie Couples and, and Nick Price. When I think about both of their swings, it seems very sort of 180 degrees different from each other. When I think about Nick Price, I mean he took the club back. He had a lot of speed in the back swing and the and the, and the through swing. And Freddie was very or you know, still is very deliberate on the back swing and gets a lot of a lot of his speed, you know, as he's coming through on the downswing and then obviously finishing through. But I, from a speed yep. and tempo perspective, they seem very different to me
0: oh miles apart miles apart that's kind of the beauty of this game right It's not a it's not a one size fits all there's no there's no cookie cutter you know there's no way to say well gosh you know we should all swing uh with the tempo and rhythm that ernie ells has or we should all try to swing like nick price i mean they're both pretty incredible right yeah you know but i always thought freddie was cool he was just good looking guy dressed sharp and you know, it was like all the guys kind of wanted to be him, and I think all the girls liked him. Like, who, who wouldn't want to be Freddie Couple? He just seemed like he had it all figured <laughs> Agreed. out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did.
1: Shane, before I let you go, I got to get a playing lesson from you. And um, you did a video about putting where you talk about how amateur golfers like me, we can step up to a five-foot putt you know to save par to, or for a bogey and we can make that but it seems like all the time but if that five footer for birdie we typically miss and you say it's because we're not yeah. used to making birdies we're more used to trying to save par talk about why it's different
0: well it's it's you know time and place right and and people find their comfort zone they get used to whatever whatever x is you know, if you're 10 handicap you tend to shoot roughly 10 over par and that's, that's kind of your comfort zone and, it's no different than the ten handicap that all of a sudden walks up to seventeen T and realizes he's three over on the day. You know, it's it's a big it's a big deal. And so it happens in a little smaller form as it relates to putting, but uh and this is this is a little off the, the question you just asked, but I think your listeners will get a kick out of this. So do you remember when David Duvall shot his fifty nine? Yes. I just watched that video. Yeah. Isn't that cool? And, um, I don't know if you remember, but the guys in his group kind of were struggling a little bit and had to get some rulings and that sort of thing. And he fired that thing up there at about six feet. And he and his caddy got up there and quickly marked the ball and walked off the green with their back to the hole. And he didn't look back. And one day, I asked him. I said, "What? What were you guys doing?" Like you walked off. You walked off the green, backs to the hole. And he says, "Well." He says, "I knew what that putt was for, obviously." He says, "And I knew that my first look was my best look, and I wanted it to be my only look." He goes, "So what I did is I waited till wow. it was my turn, got over there, looked at it once, and hit the thing as quick as I could hit it." <laughs> and I think as amateurs go, to kind of elaborate on the question that you just asked, I mean, you you can think of this in terms of yourself as a golfer. How many times do you get over a putt and go, oh, it looks like this, got it, and you set up over it and go, nope, now it goes this way? Yeah, yeah. Most, peop- most people are doing that. I don't know. Let's just go with at least 50% of the time. They get over it and <laughs> they change versus trusting their first look and just letting it go, right? Right. So I sort of thought, I sort of thought what David said was very genius. Um, he knew his first look was his best look. He was going to trust it and go with it and, and didn't mess around. I mean, obviously he read it like he normally would, right? But he didn't get over that thing and let that secondary element kick in. Well, the secondary element for the golfer that doesn't make a lot of birdies is, Oh dear God, I have a chance for a birdie. <laughs> well, if you get up over it, take right. a look. Get your first look, call it good, pull the trigger. Chances are you get a much better chance of of getting that thing to drop in the bottom of the cup than you would if you got over it and all of a sudden, you know, tried to, try to do some new, new mathematics to figure this whole thing out.
1: (laughs) That's a hundred percent right. And I I tell you what, that's that's probably the best playing lesson. And in in the eight years I've done this show, that might be the best playing lesson I've heard. (laughs) I need to adopt that going forward. Good call out of you. That's it. Shane, before I let you go, uh, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with you.
0: you can Uh Follow me on Instagram, at LeBaronGolf, or check me out at the, our website, ShaneLeBaronGolf.com.
1: Shane, you are a treat, my friend. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. I always have a great time when you're here. I hope you'll come back and do it again soon.
0: I'd love to, Chris. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. It's a pleasure to visit with you, and thank you for all you do for golf and uh, us instructors. We we all genuinely very much appreciate it.
1: Well, I appreciate you guys. Take care, Shane. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up soon.
0: Thank you, Chris. You take care.
1: See you, Shane. That's the great Shane LeBaron, and folks, that is the best playing lesson. I have received on this show in eight years. I am not going to be the guy that stops, you know, because Shane's one hundred percent right. You get behind the ball, you you look and you and you and you make your read, and the next thing you know, you're standing up over the ball, and you go, "Wait a minute, that's it's not going that way." That's why I asked earlier in the show about trying to make sure how how do you you know find the break? How do you read the break? How do you read the green? And that's the thing that I do to myself more more times than not. I've got to read. I stand up over the ball. Now I'm looking at the hole as I'm standing, you know, I just tried the ball, right? And then I say, no, 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 that it doesn't break that way at all. It breaks the other way. So then I hit it the other way, and then I wonder, I thought it broke that way. No, that is a great lesson right there. Trust your first read from now on. Okay, before I get to my next guest, John Fote, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Two Under. Two under men's performance briefs are the official underwear of the 2021 U.S. Ryder Cup team, the captain and all vice captains. They are worn by more than 30 players on the PGA and Champions Tour. They are also worn by over 70 NCAA Division I colleges and 17 NFL teams. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort, fit and performance from the golf course to the boardroom to the bedroom. Find these 200 performance men's briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all shields sports stores, PGA tour superstore, golf galaxy, and other fine retailers near you. Go online to 200.com. That's the number two, U N D R dot com. 200 performance in your pants. Use code on the T20 for a 20% discount at checkouts, not valid on items already on sale or NCAA license briefs. I also want to welcome a new sponsor to the show, Pine Valley Orthotics, and their founder, Stu Sakowitz. Did your feet, back, knees, and hips stop you from playing good golf or golf at all? Maybe plantar fasciitis or neuropathy is killing your golf game? Then you owe it to yourself to try a pair of Pine Valley Orthotics with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Pine Valley Orthotics are uniquely designed with an energy return system not found in any other product. When you step down, they gently spring back, relieving foot pain and stress. Energizing your whole body, and they work. I love my Pine Valley Orthotics. I've got them in my golf shoes, and I've got them in my dress shoes. In fact, Stu Sakowitz, the owner, is so sure that they're going to ease your pain, he's offering a 30 day money back guarantee. If you want better balance and stability, treat yourself to a pair of Pine Valley Orthotics today. Go to pinevalleyorthotics.com, and for a limited time, you can get these for only $99 and a 30 day money back guarantee. That's only $99. Ease your pain, improve your game, and change your life. Only at PineValleyOrthotics.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me is John Fote. John is one of the top golf course architects in our game, who also played out on the PGA Tour, the Corn Ferry Tour, and the Champions Tour. He's from Portland, Oregon, and he played his college golf at BYU, where he helped them win four WAC Conference Championships and 29 tournament titles. He won the Pacific Coast Amateur Championship in 1975 at the Olympic Club in San Francisco. He was also named an All-American in 1976 when he won two collegiate tournaments, helped BYU to the runner-up finish in the NCAA tournament, and he played on the World Cup Amateur team. That year, he also tied teammate Mike Reed for Low Amateur in the U.S. Open here at the Atlanta Athletic Club. 1977 was a big year for John. He was a member of the victorious US Walker Cup team. He won the US Amateur Championship and was also named US Amateur Athlete of the Year. He turned pro later in 1977 and joined the PGA Tour in 1978. Got his first win on the PGA Tour in 1979 at the Buick Goodwrench Open in a playoff over Jim Simons. He backed that up winning the very next week at the Anheuser-Busch Classic and he was named the 1979 PGA Tour Rookie of the Year. In the late 80s, he started John Foote Design and began designing golf courses. He originally worked with Bob Cup before going out on his own. Among his great works are Pumpkin Ridge in North Plains, Oregon, and redesigning Pine Needles Golf Club in North Carolina. He also redesigned the Dogwood and Azalea courses at the Country Club of Jackson, Mississippi, which is the site of the Sanderson Farms Championship on the PGA Tour. In 1995, John was inducted into the BYU Hall of Fame, And in 2009, he was inducted into the Pacific Northwest Golf Association's Hall of Fame as well. I'm very excited he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks very much, Chris. It's uh, fun to talk with you for a while.
1: John, I, I want to start our time tonight by going back, really, I guess, to the beginning of the game for you, because I read it was your grandmother that started you playing when you were seven years old. Talk about her.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. My, uh, my parents had six children and they were, uh, to have one of them get out of the house. And I used to sneak out with my grandmother. She was learning to play golf and I caddied for her at the beginning when I was about six or seven years old. And then she taught me a little bit how to play and I just started whacking the ball around, which is, which was fun. And I, I actually played in the women's group on the public golf courses which was hilarious when I ended up winning the U.S. Amateur I got notes from them and I was an honorary member of their group which was hilarious Uh, but I (laughs) my grandmother was very special to me and uh, she introduced me to my wife and uh, so she was a big part of my life when I was young.
1: And John being from Portland Oregon curious what got you to BYU?
2: Uh, you know, I, I, it was really funny that I got recruit, I really didn't want to go to BYU. I was, you know, more settled on going to one of the southern schools, but I, I actually, uh, the coach had me stay with Johnny Miller. And of course, back in wow. those days, Johnny Miller was the king and I stayed with him for a few days. And after that, I was more than happy to, uh, to go to BYU. It was a, it was a great experience. I had the best teammates when i played there our first six guys all at some point in time went on the pga tour and it was quite competitive for us to uh be able to play against one another each day and john
1: talk about the rich history of golf there at, at BYU. you mentioned johnny miller and i've had the privilege of having zach blair richard zirkle and, and bobby clampett as guests on the show but you throw in miller Daniel Summerhays, Mike Weir, I mean I could go on and on. BYU has had a heck of a men's golf program. Talk about the rich history
2: there. Yeah, we did. Uh Coach Tucker was as responsible as anybody for that. He was the uh, he was a good recruiter and uh and he always he was kind of at the forefront. He always had us in uniforms, you know, we all wore the same thing before everybody else did years ago. And they were, and, and at that time we were a very competitive school, obviously, and, and the WAC, which is the, what we were in, had Arizona and Arizona State in it, and so we had a great. And he always took us to really good tournaments, mostly all on the West Coast, but um, we got a chance to play great golf courses against great people, great players, and it, it made us all better, really.
1: John, you won the Northwest Open title beating a guy that, as I read, became a friend of yours later on, Peter Jacobson, who is also from Oregon and was the reigning Pac-10 champion at the time. What do you remember about going head to head in that tournament against Jake?
2: Well, you know, it was, I was quite fortunate. I was actually two shots down with three play. And I hit some rather miraculous shots, one of them out of the trees to about 10 feet and made it for birdie. And then I birdied the last hole as well. And we ended up in a playoff and I won on the second hole. I I mean, it was, I was very fortunate as we were walking up that last fairway, you know, there were all the people were out there congratulating because he still had a two shot lead. Unfortunately, he managed to three putt and I managed to make about a 12 footer for birdie. In a way, we went into a playoff, and you know, I I think it's pretty hard to win a tournament after you basically got it won, and then the whole world caves in on you, and the other guy makes two or three birdies coming in on the last couple holes, and you just make one or two mistakes, and all of a sudden you're tied. So, you know, it was it would have been a tough day for anybody to beat the other guy who's making birdies, and you've got the tournament won, and then it just total collapse. So. uh but yeah, Peter and I played against each other a number of times. He he's he's a fantastic player and played very well on the PGA Tour. John in
1: 1976, not only did you tie teammate Mike Reed for low amateur at the US Open, you also were right there on the leaderboard next to you, Arnold Palmer who you also tied in that tournament. Had to be a huge thrill for you playing so well that week. Talk about what you remember. About uh, that U.S. Open,
2: you know, it was uh, it was the first time I ever played. I I, I've never played on greens that fast in my life. At that point, I hadn't played in a U.S. Open or any or Masters or any of those things. And I remember walking out to the to the putting green the very first day, getting there, dropping three balls, and I stood over the putt about twenty five feet, and I hit it twenty five feet past. And then the next putt, I hit about 15 feet past. I stepped back and said, okay, this is going to be different. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, I learned a lot about competitive golf. I played a practice round with Johnny Miller and I played a practice round with Billy Casper, uh, and some other guys. And boy, I just soaked it in. You know, it was really. It was really fun to play that golf tournament. It was it was so big and it was, you know, it was just a cool thing. I it, I'd never had a chance to play anything that big before. And you know, when you make a birdie, the whole place erupts, you know, cuz there's galleries everywhere. I just remember it just being such an incredible experience and one that, you know, you just want to keep doing.
1: John, 1977 was an amazing year for you. First, let's talk about winning the U.S. Amateur. You did so at Aeronomy Golf Club outside of Philadelphia. You won your 36-hole final match, 9-8. and eight. Talk about what it was like achieving that goal by that margin.
2: Well, it really goes back to the year before uh, when we played at Bel Air in Los Angeles. I was two up with three to play and I lost the match. I lost the last three holes. And I just remember just the dejection of feeling like I had just failed in every sense of the word. And I just wanted to take one more shot at it. I really wanted to have a chance to win that tournament. It's the U S amateur is just such a cool event. And of course it was all match play back in those days. You started with 200 players and, uh, But the week before, I had played the Walker Cup in 1977. I played four matches, which means I played 36 holes a day. And our captain was having us play 36 holes a day in the practice round. So by the time I got to Aronimek, I was Bush, to say the least. I was playing very well. But fortunately, in those days, I got a bye the first round. Uh, I don't know if I could have made it because you had two or three days where you had if you made it towards the end. You had to play 36 holes a day. And I remember uh, the thing I remember the most was just the second day, the the uh quarterfinals, semifinals. I beat Denny Giles in the morning match, um, like two up, two and one. And in the afternoon, I played Jay Siegel on his home golf course. And, uh, that was one of the biggest crowds I ever played golf in front of. There was about, they were about four to six deep surrounding every hole. And there wasn't anybody in that gallery except maybe my wife who was pulling for me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that was, that was quite an event. And, uh, you know, I met, I hit a couple of, uh, career shots from being in trouble and a couple of times pitch shot through some things and, and managed to make birdie, got to the last hole and uh managed to, I drove it in the middle of the fairway, had a little mud on my ball. And it was just, uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. And anyway, so Jay and I drove it together and I was one up going into the last hole. And I hit a like a six iron about three feet. And I just, I said, you know what, I'm not going to let that bother me. And it was probably one of the greatest shots I've ever hit. And I hit it about three feet. He was in, he hit it in the bunker and blasted out and he walked over and he said, that was such a great shot. You deserve to win. And <laughs> I'll never forget those two <laughs> rounds, those two rounds playing two U S amateur champions and Jay, of course, I think won a couple of times and, uh, and Vinny, who is one of the great amateurs of all time and having to play them the same day and in Philadelphia at that particular time of the year was you know it was eighty nine degrees and about the same humidity, so it was you had to be in your early twenties to be able to make it through and uh and I just remember you know playing extremely well the last day and just driving it right in the middle of the fairway every hole, and I was probably driving it you know thirty forty yards past my opponent uh Doug Fischescher is a terrific guy, but it just that particular day I had my game on a. And I drove it in the middle of every fairway. And I think I was, I was under par. Golf course was playing extremely difficult at that time. And, uh, I, I, it was exciting. Uh, believe me. And when you get down, you don't want to let up because when you do, you can start the momentum going the other way. I, I just remember, you know, I remember a lot of what happened, even though it was such a long time ago. It was, uh, it was really fun.
1: John, you mentioned those Walker Cup matches that you played in prior to that. And that year, the matches were played at Shinnecock Hills. Augusta National Chairman Fred Ridley was a member of that team, as were Gary Hallberg, Jay Siegel, who you mentioned, Scott Simpson, among others. Sandy Lyle was a member of the Great Britain and Ireland team. Talk about getting to be a part of those matches.
2: I just remember being incredibly proud. To represent the United States, it was a truly an honor to be able to be out there and anybody that doesn't i've said this many times it's hard for me to imagine somebody not just you know coming to almost tears when you see those bagpipes coming up the hill and your flag flying and you realize you're representing you know the three hundred million people that live in that in the United states i mean it's pretty cool, and I just remember i Playing really really well, my partner and I, Vance Hefner, and I were the number one like doubles team. So we played both both matches. Uh, in fact, I think we played. There was three of them. So We uh, we played four matches, and one of them was singles. But uh I was fortunate to have won every match, and we played Sandy Lyle in one of the doubles matches. And but our we our game was just tuned right in and we were driving the ball well and, and Vance and i were great friends and we just enjoyed the opportunity to play together in that event we played our practice rounds together and our our captain lou Emig, put us together and just let us go and uh we were very fortunate to have won john in
1: 1979 you get your first win on tour at the buick goodwrench open you get it done and a playoff. What was it like for you coming down the stretch
2: trying to win your first PGA tour event? It it's <laughs> it's amazing, quite frankly. I got the last hole at Warwick Hills is about a four hundred and eighty five yard par four with out of bounds left and bunkers on the right. I had not made par on that hole until the last day. And I had, in fact, I'd made double bogey on the hole one day and I looked at my caddy because I wasn't watching the board at that time. And I just said, you know, what do we have to do? And he looks at me and says, you have to make three to get in a playoff. I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> at least I know what I have to do now. And I just hit the perfect drive. I just crushed it right down the middle and I actually had like an eight iron in and I hit it about 12 feet and just got up over the putt, and lined it up, didn't think about it much, and knocked it in the middle of the hole. And I was uh, I was really fortunate. Jim Simons on the first playoff hole hit a very poor iron shot. He'd been in the clubhouse for probably 45 minutes, and I was still going strong. And uh, he pulled it, and uh, he made bogey, and I hit the ball in the middle of the green, and uh Made par and won and I have pictures of that. My wife is just sobbing. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was fun. It was, uh, really, really, you know, it's, a, it's an accomplishment to win an event on the PGA tour. It really is. It's, it's an amazing, you're beating the best players in the world and at the top of their game. And it's, it was just fun. That's all.
1: And not only did you win that week, you back it up the following week and, uh, you go back to back, which, like you say, it's not, it's never easy to win a PGA tour event, one PGA tour event, let alone do it two weeks in a row. And during a time when, I mean, so many of the greatest players, you know, of our generation, I mean, Jack and Seve and Trevino, Watson, Watkins, you go on and on. So many of those legends are at the peak of their powers at that time in the seventies. Looking back, knowing that you did it two weeks in a row has just got to be something that fills you with a lot of pride. And what a tremendous accomplishment.
2: Well, it was a great, you know, I kind of backed into the the second one. I I was coming down the last few holes and I was not really that much in contention. I was three or four shots back coming into the last hole. And I had figured Luke Graham was going to win the tournament. You know, he was up on me by like four shots. What I didn't realize is that he made two double bogeys in a row, which is, I, I can't even, I still can't believe he did that. And I got to the last hole, looked up on the board and saw he did that. And I'm like, it's a par five. I'm like, Hey, if I make birdie here, I could get in a playoff. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I hit the ball. I pitched the ball about 20 feet and knocked it right in the middle of the hole. And which was fun. I thought, well, I'm going to make it in the playoff. There was two or three other guys and none of them made birdie on the last hole, which was shocking to me because it was a reachable five. And uh, I drove it in the left rough and had to play short off the tee. And so by making that birdie, I didn't even, I wasn't even in a playoff. I just won it straight up. I mean, it was, you know, after the week before I I couldn't believe I was winning another event. Uh and so it was I, I kinda backed into it. It was uh, last man standing, so to speak. So it it was a it was a, a fun accomplishment, something completely unexpected, like I said. Uh so that was that was quite a deal.
1: John, fast forward a few years. You finished fifth at the 1983 PGA Championship, which was won by Hal Sutton. Peter Jacobson would would finish third. Your team, Mike Reed, tied for ninth. You never left the top of that leaderboard. You were right there in the mix every day. Talk about that week at Riviera Country Club.
2: Well, Riviera is one of my favorite golf courses. And I love the golf course because it's a golf course that you either – If you're playing well, you can score. If you aren't playing well, it just beats you up. I mean, you just, you don't luck into a good round there or anything. And that particular week, uh, up until the last day, I just played great. The last round I was, I, I, I was paired with Hal Sutton and Ben Crenshaw. And for whatever reason, I just could not make a putt that day because I was in the hunt. And Hal played spectacular. I mean, he did all the things that a champion does. And, uh, Ben did not have a good day that day. And I, for whatever reason, my putter just got cold, which that happens in events. I just could not make putts that day. I think I shot like even or one under or something, but I just couldn't get it going all day long. But it was, it was still a lot of fun to be in the last group and had a chance to win a championship like that on a great golf course. I uh I'll never forget that either. That was that was really fun.
1: John and your back to back victories in seventy nine got you into the nineteen eighty Masters where you finished tied for thirty third, but what a wonderful thing to go play at Augusta National. I'm always curious, what does it feel like when you go to the mailbox, get the letter out and you see you've got you've got an invitation there. From the Augusta National Golf Club.
2: Actually, I played in the Masters three times. I played it three time. I played as an amateur in 1977. So that was actually my second. You know, I played in the. I played it in 1977. I played in 1980 because I won in 1979. And then I played again after I finished high in the in the uh, PGA. You know what? I, I have those invitations framed and they were three different chairmans, but boy, you know, having the opportunity to play in the masters, which is really the cathedral to the game of golf is really, really cool. And I, I and the interesting thing is, I think the first time I played, I have a, my invitation is from Clifford Roberts. So it might have been like his last time that he was alive, that he was actually the chairman. So, uh but I remember playing in the Masters. It was my first time. It was, you know, you play, the amateurs play with former champions. And I was paired with like Art Wall. And I'll never forget, I got up in those days, the keys were shorter. We were using wooden-headed clubs. But I drove it over the first, I drove it over the bunker on number one, hit a wedge in about 12 feet, and made it for birdie. And I thought to myself it's not going to get any better than this.
3: <laughs> it <didn't.
2: laughs> uh, I mean it was it was fun. You know, but I what you have the masters does such a good job of making your week memorable. I had I made 3 eagles when I played in that event over the years and I have glasses. You know, you get stooping for certain things and you know, I I have three children so they'll each get two of them. <laughs> But, uh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful memory that was being able to play in that event. Never finished high enough, as high as I would have liked to have, but the experience of playing there was just awesome. It was, it's a great place to play golf. And as everybody knows, uh, it's very special. Uh, To be able to drive up Magnolia Lane and be able to hit balls alongside, you know, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, and have the opportunity to play on that golf course, uh, which is, you know, historically is one of the great.
1: John, just a couple more before I let you go. And I want to switch gears over over to your course design work. Talk about... What happened and and how you got started doing course design and and uh, falling in love with that
2: aspect of the game? Now, you know it's it's interesting. It, playing in the early '80s, I was paired with Nicholas in an event, and of course, players do chat a little when they're on the golf course. And I just started asking questions because I lived in Portland, Oregon, and they had never had any kind of a major still haven't had a major championship in in my lifetime they had the PGA there one year but it was Ben Hogan won it in, you know I think it was 1947 but um never had the US Open and I just thought you know why couldn't we build a golf course like that and I kept talking to Jack about it and he said you know you really have a keen interest in this why don't you talk to my senior designer Bob Cup and he and I struck up a friendship Bob uh, Bob is gone now, but I mean, he is, he was such a fun person to chit chat with. And I called him all the time. He was so nice to me and I just enjoyed the opportunity to learn. And all of a sudden he told me, he says, you know, you have an aptitude for this. You ought to think about doing this someday. Well, as it turns out in 85, I ruined my, not ruined, but I screwed up my spine and it, gave me a lot of time to think about something else and uh and that's how I got in design it was really a help from Jack Nicholas and Bob Cup and it was also uh just my burning desire to do something different i i found that that i could draw plans that i could do those kinds of things and i could find some work pumpkin ridge was really a, a major event uh for me in my life because i had the opportunity to learn so much. I was out there every single day. Bob, of course, living on the East coast would come intermittently once or twice a month. And, and it was just a, it was just so much fun to learn. And I just got hooked and I just got to the point where I, I wanted to study everything about design. I have six or 700 books. I have, you know, I've, fortunate that I've traveled all over around the world and played golf. And it just became so interesting to me and obsession. And it was a great pathway when I couldn't really play anymore because of my spine issues. Uh, it really became a fantastic part of my life. It's very creative, but at the same time, it's also, it also has to be practical. And for me, I just love doing design. It's I just love it. Every single time I have the chance to do it, I do it, uh, in it with, with passion and, and I love it. And, uh, I learned so much from Bob. It was, uh, it was really, really fun learning and learning to think a different way. When you're playing golf, you're just trying to shoot the lowest possible score, (laughs) however you do it. And, uh, but I was fortunate enough to, you know, rely on some of those past experiences and, and being able to do the things that I did in the game of golf before I became an architect really helps me then just learning all the technical skills that it takes to do it. So it's been a passion and I enjoy it and it will probably do it till the day I die. John, one more before I let you
1: go. And a mutual friend of ours, Mitch Lawrence, wanted me to say hello to you and how much he has enjoyed getting to spend some time with you and your work out at Pine Needles. As you know, Mitch is just one of the finest people on the planet and has a great podcast of his own talking golf getaways, which uh, folks you need to be sure that you add that to your golfing content because Mitch and Darren do such a wonderful job. John, I want to talk about pine needles and the work you did there. Talk about that project.
2: You know, I, I first of all, Mitch is such a good guy. Uh I actually had the there opportunity is. some years ago to, uh, to work on that project, a restoration of a Ross and then make some adjustments to it to maybe make it play for today's golfer. And, and then I had a second opportunity to actually, uh, actually finish a golf course that Donald Ross never had the chance really to finish in Wilmington, North Carolina, which was where I actually first met Mitch. Uh, I had the opportunity, uh, because when I say it was never finished, it was sand green when it was finished. And before Ross was able to, he never finished the golf course. He never actually did his final design. I had the opportunity to do that. And it seems to be climbing in the ratings. It's just a fun place. I mean, how many places in the world can you go and play? a Donald Ross golf course and it's a municipal golf course. So, you know, I have some great experiences in North Carolina. I love that state so much. If I I always tell people, you know, if I wasn't a if I didn't live in North Carolina, my wife lived here, my kids lived here, I would I'd probably move to North Carolina. I just I love that state. It has so many cool things. And Pinehurst Pine Needles both are wonderful tests of golf. And then Being able to go to Wilmington and and work in Charlotte and some of those places, has just been a great, enjoyable experience to work there. John,
1: before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they learn more about you, stay up to date with the great things you're doing, and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media?
2: I am not the biggest social media guy. I do have a website to Um. but I just, you know, I, I deal I take care of my own stuff. People have called me all the time and asked me questions, which I really don't mind. I have an office number here. I live in Scottsdale and I travel a great deal. I, I like to go look at golf courses. So anybody that talks to me knows I'm extremely passionate and, uh, I'm not the biggest on social media. I will. I'm not on Twitter or some of those things, but I, I do have a Facebook account, and uh, I do put pictures of projects up there occasionally. I have several I'm going to be putting up there in the near term.
1: Well, John, I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time tonight and uh, coming to be a part of this show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime.
2: Thank you, Chris. All the best to you and all your listeners.
1: That is the great John Foat and his uh, the spelling of his last name is F-O-U-G-H-T, and net is the website. What a tremendous college amateur and pro career John had, and uh, looking forward to having him back and uh, hearing more about those stories of, of his time in college and then uh, through the 70s and uh, early part of the 80s out on tour, and then obviously catching up on a lot of the great design work he's doing now. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Tim Cusick, Bob Byman, Shane LeBaron, and John Fote for joining me tonight. Folks, please check out our website, nextonthetee.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patchery, will be back, as will LPGA legend Jane Blaylock. Really looking forward to catching back up with Jane again. Another one of the great instructors in our game, Nancy Corsellino, will be making her second visit with me this season. And then we'll round out the show with CEO of Swing You, Charles Cox, making his next On the tee debut. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. Thank you again for listening to this show tonight and for continuing to make Next On the tee a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit him straight, my friends.